Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Lisa Mexen is a New York-based interdisciplinary artist working in painting, installation, and public art. Born in the former Soviet Union, she immigrated to the United States in 1989. Lisa has created site-specific installations for the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art in Salt Lake City, The Kitchen in New York City, Brick Media Arts in Brooklyn, Brandeis University, and the former Donnell branch of the New York Public Library and a National Endowment of the Arts-funded project in New Haven, Connecticut for Art Space. She's the recipient of the Rima Hortman Emerging Artist Grant and in 2013 co-founded Ortega E. Gazette Projects, an artist-run gallery and curatorial collective in Brooklyn. Lisa received an MFA from the Yale School of Art and a BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and a BA and MA in Comparative Literature from the University of Chicago. She teaches at Columbia University School of the Arts. I met up with Lisa at her current show at Miller Contemporary on the Lower East Side, and we talked about her well-traveled youth, her love of fabric, and the many ingredients that inform her work. Here's our conversation. What I would love to do is get a little bit about your history. Mm-hmm. You grew up in the Soviet Union, I, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And um, how long were you there? Um, I was born in Moscow, mm-hmm. and um, my family immigrated to the United States uh, when I was 12. So actually, it was like 11 and a half when we left, and the immigration process was um, really drawn out mm-hmm. at that point. Um, so we lost you know, our citizenship in the Soviet Union as soon as we declared our exit. But yeah we needed to get refugee status in the country that we are going to actually end up in. Mm-hmm. So the way that that happened is we we went to Vienna first and then took a train to Rome and stayed in this Catholic monastery. And I remember seeing the crucifix for the first time mm-hmm. and a bidet. Um, and just between those two things, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so surreal. Um, you know, kind of like high hygiene and religiosity, or mm-hmm. just, I remember seeing the dollar bill and reading In God We Trust and just feeling like I'm going to the most backward place ever. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, Soviet Union it was atheist, so yeah. that's how we were raised, and we were taught that religion is really backwards and conservative and um, kind of the old world and that the new order doesn't have room for religion. So I was, you know, I was very much brainwashed um, and raised like a good little communist. And I was very angry with my parents when they told me we were leaving. Mm -hmm. Um, I understood their reasons, but I felt also that, you know, the West was, the capital West was evil and and that I didn't want to be part of that order um, and that the communist ideal you know, it makes sense, like, to a kid, like, everybody should share and have, you know, equal stake in property and, um, or not have private property, you know. So to me, it was sort of like these idealized notions of how humans could relate to each other. And I was too young to know how that actually works out Mm -hmm. in the communist order. 
So I just felt like it's our home and we should make the best of it. And even though, you know, growing up as a Jew in Moscow was uh, difficult, like I definitely stood out from my classmates. Mm -hmm. Like it was sort of like, you know, which, which out of these are not like the other ones. Like you could just pick me out right. from the class. Um, and, you know, the kids made, it's like anti-Semitism was so ingrained that like kids didn't even know that they were participating in it. Yeah. But I remember, you know, my classmates drawing my profile on the blackboard and like, la you know, with like an exaggerated hook nose mm -hmm. and, and just calling me that hook nose and so despite that i, I was gonna say yeah, yeah you still i didn't still want wanted want, yeah it was my home and yeah. i i just i even though i felt this kind of weird tension um and this kind of pressure that i'm not russian because because there it's such a xenophobic society there was always you know you might be like in the market or just like in the subway and some person would be like Oh, are you a little Jewish girl or are you a little Uzbeki girl? You know, that would be like yeah. a total, totally normal question yeah. to ask. Right. And so from an early age, I was very aware that like it's better to just say Uzbeki because somehow, even though it's a minority, it's not as um, hated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, growing up with that sense of like, yes, you're Jewish and that's that's something that's good, but just don't mention it to other people, mm -hmm. you know, so this kind of weird... Um, shame that clung to that um, and it still even sticks with me now even you know in a sitting like like New York where there's so many Jews I still feel this weird fear like if somebody like the other day I was getting my hair cut and the person uh, was from the Middle East and he was asking me like where I was from and I said I'm from Russia and he was like you don't look Russian <laughs> and I just immediately had that like fear wave, you know, which was so irrational, yeah. but I think it just, you know, if you're raised um, in that environment, it just sticks with you somehow. Um, That's yeah. hard, too, for kids to have to think about saying you're something else, you know, just to make things easier. Yeah. I'm sure that wires your brain in a way that just doesn't go away, you know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I, I had to kind of wrestle with that. Um, notion of how to be proud of something that is also a secret yeah. you know it seems like contradictory so and I just thinking about issues of shame um, throughout my um, artistic practice I mean I don't think about it as much anymore but I think for a long time there was this sort of veiling that was happening mm -hmm. in the work that I kind of attribute to that yeah um, so you ended up in Vienna. How long were you there? In Vienna, we were only for a week. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being like completely stunned by the fact that the streets were being washed with soap. Mm -hmm. Like they were like thuds. And, you know, just I was just looking at like, wow, their, their streets are cleaner than many homes that I've been to. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, just seeing the supermarket for the first time and seeing like the abundance of those choices was really um it you know it was both like kind of exciting and beckoning but also really 
frightening to me and kind of confusing. Like, uh, my dad and I went to the supermarket and just stood in the, we were, we were trying to buy salt and we ended up leaving without it because there was like a whole aisle of salt and we just couldn't make too many choices. There was too many choices. Yeah. And my dad was like, this is the one thing communism was really good at. You know, you only had two choices you get or what you none. Get. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, and then uh, we took a train, overnight train to Italy. And then after being in this monastery for 10 days, my parents uh, found a little basement apartment in Santa Marinella, which is like a seaside town, maybe 45 minutes out from Rome. And it was, you know, early spring at that point, or maybe still February, winter, yeah. And so it was, you know, nobody was there. It wasn't like the high season. And um, and then we were essentially just there waiting for our various appointments with embassies. So like we met with the American embassy and petitioned for refugee status. And we were waiting to hear back and kind of making um, well, not me personally, but my parents were making some decisions about where would we go if we don't get refugee status. Um, because there was like a huge wave of Russian Jews leaving the Soviet Union right around that time. Mm -hmm. So in Santa Marinella, it was like a bunch of Russian Jews at this time. So it was really strange to be in Italy, but then like you walk down the street and you just hear Russian, you yeah. know. Um, but there was a lot of people there who were um, denied refugee status and were essentially in limbo because, you, you know, you don't have any standing in the Soviet Union anymore. You can't go back there. Yeah. You don't have any rights in Italy. Like if something happened to you, you're screwed, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and if you get denied refugee status, you can't really go to the States either. So a lot of people, you know, were making decisions like, do we go to Israel or um, Australia was also accepting people on, um, at that time. So like our close friends from Moscow that we kind of grew up with on the same street ended up, now they live in Australia. So there's this weird like time and place split, you know, because of this sort of diaspora that happened. Yeah. Um, but we were lucky uh, and we were granted refugee status. And so we were in Italy for about five months and, um, and then came to United States. And um, out of all the places, um, my parents ended up settling in Columbus, Ohio. I, didn't, I was trying to think of where it could be. Yes. That was, was not but, yeah, Columbus. Exactly. So I was, you know. No, wait, is, is that something that's just that you they decided or is that somewhere that was um, wh what was the reason well initially it was because we had some distant relatives okay. in Columbus Ohio so we thought we would just make like a pit stop and spend some time there and my parents would send out job applications they're they're both scientists mm -hmm. so um, they kind of thought they'll just apply all over but then my father got a job in Columbus that was like a pretty good job considering, you know, being an immigrant from another country, mm -hmm. speaking bad English. And um, and then they just stayed there. In fact, they're there now. Yeah. Um, it was that good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm from Pittsburgh, so okay. Ohio, 
you know, uh, we have so this like, kind of rivalry. Totally. With Ohio. <laughs> oh, I I, um, I dated someone for a long time from Pittsburgh, and I would always rile her up by saying. Um, that Pittsburgh is in the Midwest. And yeah. she'd be like, no! It's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it'd be like, okay, if it's if it's like a three-hour drive from Columbus, Ohio, come on. It's Midwest. It's Midwest. It's weird. It's kind of Southern, too, in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's not, but the people, I, you know, there's a little bit of Southern touch to it, too, okay. kind of like in a Kentucky way or something. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I love Pittsburgh, and I, um, I almost went there for grad school, and... Just, I don't know, I think it's a really great town. But I never really felt that way about Columbus until, you know, now when I go back, um, I, I do love it because it feels so peaceful, mm-hmm. you know. Um, my parents live in the suburbs, so it's, it's so green and lush and uh, relaxing. And, and also, I think the city is a lot more um, culturally savvy than it was 25 years yeah. ago. Um, so when I got there, it was just like cows and cornfields, you know, I really, so growing up in Moscow and then going through this like transcontinental journey, um, and, you know, through Vienna and Rome, New York, and then arriving in Columbus, Ohio is like, this is our destination. This is what all of this effort was made for. Yeah. It like completely mortified me. That is a crazy path, right? I mean, how different are those places? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Did you pick up any Italian while you were there? I did. Um, You know, I think kids are much better at picking up language really fast. So I felt like chatty. Like while I was there, I was chatting in Italian and I was picking up books and and reading. And I really thought I'd continue. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, in school in the States, they didn't offer Italian, but they offered Spanish. So I thought, oh, that's that's close enough. I'll just learn Spanish. But it did this weird shift where it's so close that it actually like erased yeah. my Italian or it, that's what it felt like. So like then when I went to Italy to visit a friend, um, I just felt so confused. Like my brain was doing this thing of like, is this Italian? No, this right. is Spanish or, you know, and it's a romance languages. It's there. There's a lot of things that. I do that sometimes between because I don't speak Spanish or Italian. I took French, mm-hmm. but there's certain words that you mistake or you'll be trying to speak Spanish or say something in Spanish, and you pick the Italian word because they're so similar they're so in a lot close. of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah so in, in a way, it's it. I think it's not helpful to know a language that's really similar because it kind of confuses your brain or it did my brain. Yeah. Um, so did you? Wait, did you end up learning Spanish in school? I did, yeah. And then I actually uh, went to Spain for a summer in college mm-hmm. um, and studied at the Universidad de Salamanca. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got pretty fluent over that summer, but then again, you know, not practicing it and um, not really using it in my everyday life. Like my comprehension is still pretty high, but my speaking is not very good anymore. Well, you're in a place where you can use it. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I use it, you know... Here and there? Here and there, yeah. of course, yeah. But it's it's so limited, you know, just to say thank you or how are you or, you know, right. it's you don't get to really flex the brain muscles that need to be flexed in order yeah. to, like, keep the language really alive. And, I mean, the reason I feel like I know that it's not alive for me in Spanish is because I really make an effort for it to be alive in Russian mm-hmm. and and the effort that I put into Russian is so much greater you know I'm, I'm always reading a Russian book 
and um, you know I try to speak in Russian with my son and my parents and and it's it's effort it's like yeah. because it's not um, what I'm surrounded by so so yeah I mean it's I think it takes a lot of work to keep a language really it's like exercise yeah, you it's keep like up ex- with it or exactly it, it goes flabby totally <laughs> so true so you're a young girl in Columbus yep after this long journey, mm-hmm. your parents are scientists. Uh-huh. Where does the art sneak in? Well, um, my grandfather, who also immigrated with us uh, at the same time, he's my father's father, he was an architect. He mm-hmm. never got to practice um, in the States because he was already retired when we came. Um, but he often you know, talked about that being kind of his greatest regret. Like, I think he really wish that he had a chance to be an architect in the States. But in Russia, he, um, you know, he designed some buildings. He was also a city planner for some kind of um, provinces out um, like um, in Kazakhstan. Um, So during the war, a lot of people were evacuated there. Um, And then after, there was also like the gulags there. Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, it was kind of like a hotbed for intellectuals because a lot of intellectuals were in um, what is it called in English when you're sent by the government to a faraway place. Um, so, kind of like we have the Fulbright here. Yeah, it's kind of like the Fulbright, except you're in prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the Soviet version of the Fulbright. Yes, exactly. Slight different flavor to it. Yeah, but it you know, but it it did have that sort of um, kind of meeting a bunch of really interesting people. So even though you're like far away from the capital, um, you you know, for the stories that I heard from my grandfather was that he met Solzhenitsyn. He you know, like there was really interesting people who were um, spending their time. Um, out of you know not because of their choice but because the government made them go there um so he influenced you in a way yeah yeah i um he was a huge influence both in terms of how much he took me to museums he you know he was a huge lover of painting and art in general so he took me to see art all the time but also he pointed out things to look at just in the world you know he was a very kind of aesthetically sensitized person so he would always be like look at those colors or you know look at how the negative space between those buildings lines up with something else you know so it's like he made me aware that there's something to look at and there's a reason to look hard at something yeah um and i also uh because we lived together my my parents and I and my grandparents, you know, in, in the kind of classic Soviet way, um, I got to see him working late into the night and he had this routine that I remember feeling like it's so cool and glamorous. He would like late at night, he would um, take a cold shower and then make a really strong coffee and just with like a lot of relish settle into his by his drafting table, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of like get out all of his equipment and just like I could just tell by watching him that he was like relishing every moment of the setup and getting so excited to make something. And and he was also 
uh, he always would tell me that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. So it like really stayed with me because I could tell, I could see it in him. You know, I could see how much he loved what he did. So that was sort of my earliest example of picking, you know, thinking really hard about what is it that I truly love and how could I make my profession be that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, funny enough, I didn't go to study art in college. I think it had also to do with uh, my grandfather in a, in a weird way because he was he was very critical. Um, so even though he was very supportive of my you know artistic efforts, but he was also always sort of saying things like, "Well, you know, you have a great color sense and you got the color covered, but you got to work harder at the drawing. You're not building the drawing. You're not spending enough time like really creating the structure of, of the painting or the drawing." And, and I was so bored by structure, you know, right. just as... Well, how old were you? Uh, I mean, I started drawing and painting very young. Um, I don't, you know, this is some of my earliest memories. Like 14 or 15 or something? Oh, no, no. Oh, way, way before that. Way before that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like these harsh critiques when you're six. No, exactly. The structure in your work isn't quite there yet. Exactly. That's actually exactly what I was going to say, because... I, you know, in retrospect, I like remember some of these crits and I'm like, that was like grad school crits. And yeah. my, my father, even though he's a scientist, he's really into the arts as well. So between him and my grandfather, you know, they would just critique my, like, it, I never knew like what it is that sometimes they would be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And other times it would be like, yeah, no, you're really... You're really giving up something here. I don't, I'm not sure. Like maybe you're just not in a good mood today, but this is not working. Isn't that important though? Having that critical eye, even if you're young, like to push you. Because I feel like nowadays with a lot of kids, they're just constantly told, you know, oh, this is amazing. This is great. And there's, you know, some some part of learning is really um, learning under duress or a little bit of like anxiety about like trying to become better or trying to push yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you're always complacent. And another aspect of the teaching that he was doing is just, I think it's funny, like creating an environment of passion or when you're really excited about something. As a teacher teaching people, like when when I was a student, I saw teachers who were in their studios all the time in their office working. Mm -hmm. That's teaching. Like that is inspiring. You know what I mean? And you were getting that when you were really young. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do now that I've made my way back to art I mean ever since I made my way back to art I feel that way but for a long time so I would say you know between the time that we left Russia and um, post-college for me was even though I continued to make art I um, I focused on um, oil portraits of friends and family um, and I also did costume design for the college theater so I was really involved in the arts, but I, I put it away in terms of like, this is what I'm going to pursue f- mm-hmm. as my career. Because I really felt like between all of these ringing critiques in my head, I just felt like I'm not good enough to pursue it. So what did you study at first and where? Com- it was comparative literature at, at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I it didn't feel like a compromise to me then because or, or now um, because I do really love to read and uh, comparative literature allowed me to look at literature in different languages. I focused on um, 
Soviet, uh, like Soviet and uh, American modern and um, Spanish modern. So it, it was a really interesting experience that I think continues to sort of fuel a lot of the ways that I think about um, language and um, its connection to the visual. So when I actually when I started making art after college, it was a lot of text-based work. So I kind of wanted to connect that language to my desire to make art. Um, and it took me a while to let go of the language, you know, and not feel like my education is wasted. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think now I look back at all the things that my grandfather said and and it continues to really kind of feed me. Um, but there was definitely a time where I felt a little paralyzed by the critique. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Starting off so rigorous. Yeah. In, that's in your very toddler classic. years. Yeah, exactly. So was there a gap between when you got your degree in uh, comparative literature and then going back for art school? Was there time in between? Did you just think? Yeah. Yeah, I did take some time off. And... In uh, Chicago at that point. Yeah, and I continued to live in Chicago. I, After graduating, I went um, to work full-time um, at the Frankie Institute for the Humanities, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, essentially a humanities think tank at the, uh, uh, on campus. So it was very familiar, and I continued to hang out with um, my college friends or, you know, professors that I liked there, and and worked full-time um, there, kind of learning a lot about like the academic path because mm -hmm. it, it, it was um, a place that granted fellowships um, to prominent scholars to do research and just write whatever book they're working on. And we also did conferences and lectures, so I was really kind of in the thick of it in terms of like this is what an academic's life in the humanities will look like if you're lucky and good enough to be in a place like like that. Mm -hmm. um, so and you know, and I did find a lot of the discussions very exciting, but I felt like a profound sense of loss. Like it was sort of the first time that it hit me that in some basic way I really need color to exist in my life. <laughs> and I just remember I remember thinking that. That was sort of like the thing I grabbed onto um, as the reason why I can't do the academy. Mm -hmm. um, I just felt like despite loving to read, I it was too dry for me. I wanted, like I remember thinking, even if I like was designing socks, it, that would be better just because it would, it would let me, give me a chance to like look at colors all day and to think about color in a really um, rigorous way. I mean, I don't know if that was a projection on my part of, I mean, I still really like socks, like good socks are really important. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I was considering it for a second. And, um, and I did um, actually apply to MFA programs in costume design mm -hmm. because, you know, to me, the idea of going back to school for a BFA seemed completely out of reach and not practical, like I had to convince my parents that I should study comparative literature, you know. My dad was like, you're at University of Chicago, you gotta do econ, or you know, like the things they're famous for. And I was like, I'd rather die. 
<laughs> I'm dramatic like right. that. So, um, so then the idea that I would try to convince my parents that I need to go to art school was seemed really crazy to me. So I applied to programs in costume design and got into a number of places. And when I was interviewing at Tisch here in New York, I remember the uh, the head of the department saying, "Look, we'd love to have you, but if by any chance you could do some." Um, kind of more general art education, I think it would go a long way for you. Like, I don't think you're fully, you're fully like tapped your potential. And, and for some reason her saying that just made me feel like I have permission to do it. Yeah. And so I just. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Just that experience. And that's all you need, basically, to embolden you to be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's what I should do. Yeah. Because it was there all along. Totally. Well, and, and I, and I. It was like she pointed a light to something that I already felt, mm -hmm. but like didn't think was appropriate to feel, yeah. you know. And she was sort of like, "If there's any way you could do this, that would be good." And so, you know, I just took out crazy loans, and I remember paying my first semester tuition at the Art Institute with a credit card. <laughs> oh man! Yeah. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't today. True, true, I know, no, it's, and I, you know, I was also lucky enough to have all my liberal arts credits transfer over, so oh, I good. really just had to do studio um, courses, so I just did two and a half years of studio, and that was amazing, um, and I just, with every class I took, I felt more and more emboldened to, to, to go into the field and to feel like this is exactly what I want and so then I went straight through and went to grad school after mm -hmm. I finished my BFA. And you went to grad school in New Haven? Yep. In Yale. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So and so that was right after? Yep, straight through. Was yeah. it a good experience for you? Yeah, I mean it was really um, I think while it was happening it was so intense and saturated um, and kind of like a roller coaster ride, uh, mm -hmm. that there wasn't much introspection about how I feel about the experience. But then, you know, after graduating and um, sort of struggling out there in the real world to make art, and I, I thought a lot about all the different things I've learned. And um, I mean, I think there were many, many positives at Yale, like. Uh, the people I met there it was a really exciting place to be. Everybody was so driven and so talented. Um, what I didn't like so much is how the first kind of the entryway into any work of art was through critique. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, on the one hand, it was a very familiar model to me, so I could definitely dish it out, and I was okay with taking it as well. Yeah, you were groomed from a very early I, age. That's right. <laughs> but I think also because I was groomed from an early age and had to like rebel and do my own thing and tell my grandfather and my father, sometimes your opinion is wrong, I had like a very defiant attitude towards anyone top down, you yeah. know, and Yale is very top down. So, um, so I had some clashes. Um, which I think were really productive and really good in the end. Uh, but after Yale, I really felt like, why do I even want to make art? Like, it, uh, there was something 
in the criticism, in sort of in the rigor of the critique that surrounded the whole program that sort of settled on your impression of art with a capital A, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like art for me got kind of tainted by this idea that everything could be taken apart, everything is flawed, everything doesn't have a leg to stand on, you know? Um, so it took me a couple of years to kind of find my center again and uh, figure out what it is that I really want from art. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways, uh, I'm grateful to Yale for, you know, even though it was a really hard transition and I felt like very depressed for a couple of years after the program, um, in the end, it made my conviction of why art is important and why I want to make art that much stronger. It really know? is that that whole thing that everyone always talks about, a program that's very intense where they pull the rug out from under you, you have to build everything back up. I mean, that's the two-year plan there. If it took you two years, I like the analogy of, well, I don't even think it was an analogy, the expression of like a roller coaster ride, but yeah. literally, when you're on that roller coaster, you, you can't talk about it you just experience it, yeah. you know, it's coming so fast and it's so intense and then you get off and then you might throw up, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, you walk around kind of dizzy for a little bit and then you leave the park and you go home and a week later you're like, you know what, that was pretty great. Like, I, I think I yeah. learned a lot about myself and that <laughs> crazy experience, yeah. but it's kind of like that, you know, so you had a two year Like kind of I call it recoup. my thawing out period. I had to thaw from... Oh, yeah. Because I, so I think you know it, it. It is so rigorous there, um, and so saturated that I kind of, in a funny way, felt frozen afterwards. Like I felt like filled up to the top, and it, I needed. I couldn't even start processing because I was so full yeah. of, of impressions and opinions and feedback and rage um, that I felt as a woman trying to make paintings and being told like what you can and cannot do and mm -hmm. I don't respond well to those kind of rules so I definitely think that there was some sort of like like a traumatic kernel to the experience and I it, it was reiterated to me when I went to visit um, you know a couple of years after and uh, as soon as I walked into the art school I just broke a cold sweat <laughs> <laughs> I've never been back since I've been there so I don't know if I would do that but I love the idea of like oh god just a little tense yeah like all of a sudden although you were you were in the new building I was so yeah, yeah so you, you were in the old one yeah so it wouldn't I would be in a different place I think that's part of it though huh. like when you go somewhere that's that you and have like a specific experience in the past and it's that location that kind of like triggers something. Yeah. So I think I might be safe. Yeah, that's kind of lucky, I think, for you. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that if I were to go now, I wouldn't have that reaction because I do feel like now I, you know, not that I've processed everything, but I've processed it in a way that um, makes me feel really good about the experience there because I, I'm no longer feeling like damaged by it yeah. you know and now I feel like I'm on the other side and so I'm stronger for it and feel grateful for the program um but I think two years out I was still like oh no 
damage. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. Well, when I was a student there, we were, you know, how you pull together and decide who you want to invite as a visiting yeah. artist. We invited someone who had graduated there from like 10 years earlier and a very famous artist. And um, they did not want to do the lecture if they had to do it in the pit. It had to be in a different location because of the trauma, <laughs> but they, which I thought was a little extreme. Yeah. Like, it's not that bad. It's just talking about, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. But the, they, they, they came, didn't. but they didn't do it in a pit. Mm-hmm. It had to be somewhere else, which is pretty... It's intense. I think if you, yeah, it, you have to have a certain skin. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and it helps you grow that skin, too. But, it, you know, not everybody is lucky enough to grow the skin afterwards or while it's happening and I I witnessed I think the trauma really had to do more with what I witnessed happening to other artists rather than what I physically experienced myself because that what I experienced oh you know it always felt manageable to me like well come on look what you (laughs) look what you did when you were a kid and what you had to go through I mean that's nothing compared to that it's true and you know it's funny I remember Right after Yale, saying to someone, like, I didn't think anything could phase me because I've been through, like, Soviet Union, I've been through immigration, I've been through being a refugee and settling here as an immigrant. I didn't think that something could could just throw me off balance, but Yale really did. And, And when you're an artist, you're making, you're bearing something different. Like, if someone makes an ethnic slur or something like that, yeah. it's like a generalization, that's awful. But you, maybe you can, like you were saying, like just pretend, well, that's not me, or just deflect it in a way. But when you're putting out your, a lot of times your creative work is kind of like bearing your soul in a way. It's like very, very personal. It's so personal. So if someone's just going, you know, a full attack mode on this thing that you created, it's, it feels kind of, sh- yeah. you know, bad. <laughs> Well, and and I think also there's like this kind of mass mentality that happens because like once, and I saw this happening in many people's crits, not just in mine, but if if a crit starts going badly, like everybody jumps on that ship and adds to it. So then it feels like everyone is against you. Um, And, you know, I saw people break down and cry and I saw people like stop making art for the entire year and leave school. and, And I don't think that's a very good thing to witness as an artist I mean even if you're not the one experiencing it you are experiencing it by being part of this community right and it just felt psychologically um wrought in this way that I I felt angry about I felt like there's real suffering out there like there's real problems and as artists we're bound to have many difficult times Mm -hmm. so do we need to also have this artificially um, difficult situation yeah. kind of thrown on top of it. It's like fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Like you've, I, I, you know, there's that argument of like just it makes you stronger. You know what I mean? Like being harsh or like testing your your metal in a way mm-hmm. will make you stronger in the long run. But then there's some people who can't. Yeah. They just flight. They're like, screw this. I'm out of yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. But I don't know. And maybe. Again, I see, it's funny because I think, see things these days through the eyes of like how younger kids, like very young kids are brought up having yeah. a kid and uh-huh. like how everything now, everyone's so coddled and every, no one says anything. Like, you know what? Everything's a masterpiece and great. And part of that is really nice. But then also there is this thing called the real world where it's, it's not, not I mean, look at New York, you know, it's, 
it's not so easy. Yeah. You know, like everyone just doesn't think you're great automatically. Yeah. You really have to, and that's the other thing, you really have to work hard. Yeah. You know, and sometimes when you're challenged, you, it you makes work hard. You, yeah. yeah. It oh, makes you stronger sure. in a way. Sure. So and I think there's good and bad, I guess, of it. Yeah. You know, I know there's a lot of programs too, or places that you can go where it's just smooth sailing. Yeah. Easy goes. And yeah. you're never tested, you know, it's like if that boat doesn't ever hit the choppy waters can it hold up in a storm totally and we all go through storms in our Mm -hmm. art lives and lives in general Mm -hmm. so well you survived the storm i did two years (laughs) went by and you started you walked back into a studio i know did you move straight to the city no i actually moved to philly first um why'd you i uh my my partner at the time actually the the same partner i mentioned before who's from pittsburgh Mm -hmm. she got a job in philly and um, and I also I almost um, went to grad school in Philly, so I had some connections there, and I wrote to the people I knew um, who were teaching, and was offered some adjunct classes. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of made sense to me to move to New York for those. I mean, to move Philly. to Philly for those two reasons, yeah. Um, but it I only stayed there for a couple of years because I was um, I just ended up commuting to New York every weekend to see shows and to meet up with friends. So then I sort of thought I may as well be doing the commute the other way, like live in New York and commute to teach in Philly. So I I did that for three more years. Um, And and then I got a teaching gig um, in Ohio Mm -hmm. for a semester. And... um, so that was kind of fun for me to go. That was like my first time since I left home at 18 to go and actually live there again. And so How's that, that? It was way better. You know, I had all these fears. I actually thought uh, it would be really un, uh, like weird and unhealthy for me. But in, in a funny way, it was the opposite. It was super healing, mm-hmm. um, both for my relationship with my parents and also like the way that I perceived uh, the Midwest and Columbus, Ohio specifically, and being at Ohio State and the Wexner Center is there and all of the amazing faculty there. I just, the students were, were great. So I just really felt like, oh, this place is super vibrant. It's so different from my perception of it as, you know, a kid. Um, and did you think you could stay there longer or did you have a time plan? It was like, okay, I'm going to be out. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't give up my apartment in New York. I subletted it mm-hmm. while I was away and I, I thought I would only be in Ohio for that semester, but then I was offered another visiting, um, um, semester gig at Denison. Mm-hmm. So I ended up staying in Ohio for a year. And it was great. I mean, I got tons of work done. I had a huge studio. Um, I just felt super supported with my family there and lots of friends. And But I didn't feel like, oh, I want to stay there, you mm-hmm. know? Not that it would have been a terrible thing if it happened, because I, I do think it's a really dynamic place now. Um, but, but you had an itch. Yeah, and I really, I felt like whatever it is that I want to get from New York hasn't been gotten yet like I really New York is actually the first city in America that felt like home to me mm-hmm. so when I remember you know arriving in New York and feeling that and I just was so excited by that feeling you know by feeling like it's my home because I haven't had that feeling since Moscow mm-hmm. um, and I was really struck by that I was struck how 
you know, we immigrated in 89 and I moved to New York in 2009. So all of those years and I lived in so many different places and I, you know, I liked some places more than others, but none of them felt like home. So the fact that New York had that feeling for me felt very meaningful and important. So I, you know, I came back and I continued to do the adjunct thing and driving all over, taking the bus and um, trying to make work and just feeling really like I'm hustling all the time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I got to a point where I was like, I don't think I could do this anymore. It's like too, I'm, I'm too poor and I'm too tired. I can't even enjoy the things that New York has to offer because I'm either too poor or too exhausted yeah. <laughs> to do those things. And, um, and I started applying for full-time jobs in other places. And it's funny, I, I've heard other people say that it's like when you make up your mind that you can leave New York and you're willing to leave New York, then something opens up and you're able to stay. <laughs> but you kind of have to get to that brink where right. you're like, okay, I guess I'm just going to give up this dream. This is over. Then you get an email. Yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> that is, day. Exactly. Like, hey, why don't you come work here? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and that was, so when I got the offer to teach at Columbia, that, it, that felt to me like that sort of, not vindication of all the trials and tribulations, but more like, wow, now I could actually have something stable where mm -hmm. I know, you know, I don't have to worry every couple of months, like, will I have enough adjunct gigs here and there? But so you had been looking the whole time all over, not just, you know, you'd been looking for something a little more permanent, basically. Yeah. And you kind of came to terms with, okay, if, if it's outside the city, it's outside the city, but it is exhausting. New York is like a constant hustle. Yeah. Where you just, and that's the great irony of the city. There's so many great things here and so much fun stuff, but if you're really here working, it's hard to take advantage of any of it because you're so busy and you're just trying to get by. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Did that whole time that you were here, sort of like doing the adjunct, did you have a studio as well, or was it I, where you lived, or did you have an external studio? I, at first, it was where I lived, um, and then I got a studio with Chashama mm -hmm. in the Brooklyn Army Terminal, so I had that studio for a couple of years, maybe three years even, um, and then I got a studio in, um, in Bushwick, close to where I live, um, it was in that Troutman building that... 1417. Artist gigs and meeting really interesting people, you know, from other places in the states, mm -hmm. and then coming back to New York and feeling like, oh, I wish I could have something, you know, that connects me to this person, that gives me a, almost a reason to continue this dialogue um, that I started with them. But you know, life is so busy, and it's like if you don't have some specific thing you need to talk about, it just yeah. slips through the cracks. And that was kind of the incentive i was i was thinking about like if i were to start an artist run gallery what how would i want it to be different from like all of the other artist run spaces that were starting up um around the same time 
And to me, um, I was really intrigued by the idea of bringing artists from various places in the country, mm -hmm. um, you know, because of the internet, because we could video chat, because they don't literally need to be here in order to be part of these decisions. Um, so I basically got a group of artists who were all from different places in the United States. And I was the only New York member. Mm -hmm. And that was our first year. And of course, the great flaw in my plan was that if I'm the only person here. <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, in charge of I, everything. Exactly. So it was like painting the floor, deinstalling, installing, galleries. So that year you know even though i had this beautiful ga uh, like studio behind the gallery at the 1717 troutman space i n i didn't make any work because mm -hmm. i was so between you know my day jobs and running the gallery um i just didn't have any time yeah. and so after that first year you know we, we all felt really happy with how things went but i was sort of like let's get some new york members to like fill this out a little bit so so it's not all up to me. Um, and, that, and then, you know, we were kicked out from that building because yeah. all of the galleries were kicked out. And we were homeless for a little bit, um, doing pop-up shows, and then we found a space in Gowanus where we still are mm -hmm. based right now. And uh, Is your studio there now too? It, it, it used to be, mm -hmm. um, but now that I live, um, by Columbia, um, I was able to get uh, a residency studio gig for a year um, that's like in walking distance from my house. So I ended up subletting my studio at the gallery. Mm -hmm. So, um, wow, you really are nomadic. You I, move around. I move around like big time. <laughs> Is it comfortable at this point? I mean, I imagine it's just woven into the tapestry of your life. I think so. I really think that in some ways I really respond to the stress of being in many places at once. The challenge um, of The challenge of it um, and sort of the way that it forces you to be um, centered mm -hmm. because if you're not, then you just fall apart because there's too many places. Um, I wonder if you got a job at like Ohio State University and then you found a nice house right out, you know, outside of campus and you just lived there for 20 years if you would go absolutely crazy. I think so. I think I would really, I mean, I, you know, mental illness is something that um, there's a history of it in my family. Mm -hmm. So I'm always very uh, vigilant of things that could cause like the next wave of yeah. depression. Um, and I think for me, it's like some things that people associate with security and stability are actually very dark things and that I can't do because, you know, they kind of drain me of like mm -hmm. the creative juices. So I, I really like it when there is unknowns. Stimulus. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like Groundhog Day, you know, that movie <laughs> where can you imagine like every single day is the same thing? Yeah. And it, you would just it would just drive you, drive you out of your mind. Yeah. yeah. You'd be like, what is going, what am I doing? You know? Yeah. But it's, and as an artist, it's funny because you can go to the same studio and have the same materials, but every day it's, it's a different, different vibe. It's a different feeling. Yeah. And you're reacting, like you're making those changes, you know? I, and I think that's such, that's such a huge part of why I wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. Cause I knew that like, you know, a nine to five job is something that would like drive me to suicide. Yeah, I think there's a lot of 
a lot of that in being an artist is <laughs> the fight or flight, and it's the flight from the corporate, totally. like, sort of it's like, like you I know, can, I typing in the numbers and all that stuff, yeah. and going out of your mind. Um, so, well, why don't we talk about your work? Yeah. So, when you were making work in school, mm-hmm. were you, because, so we're here at your show at Miller, mm-hmm. and a lot of the work is multimedia, sculptural, mm-hmm. installation. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that you were doing back then and brought up into now? And Yeah, I mean, I... Um, I was in the painting department at Yale, but you know, uh, it was very interdisciplinary despite that it despite the fact that it was painting. So we were free to experiment and try whatever we want. And because I had a lot of experience with costume design um, in college, fabric was very familiar to me, very sort of uh, full of meaning. Um, and I was also thinking a lot about patterns and how, you know, each country, each region has its own patterns that are aesthetically recognizable and are co- codified, meaning they mean something. Um, and they're almost like a code mm-hmm. uh, for people who, you know, if you recognize this pattern, you know something about it, the country or the place. Uh, and if you don't recognize it, it's just decorative for you, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this like double standing with patterns that it could just be innocuously decorative or it could really connect someone to something specific. Um, so I started uh, using spandex um, in col- I mean, in grad school um, and wrapping it around uh, rectilinear supports like um, stretchers and panels mm-hmm. um, and you know I was really interested in how the pattern changes uh, because of the stretch of the fabric um, and how it evokes the body immediately even on a flat plane mm-hmm. um, and like the a lot of you know then I started sort of making these irregularly shaped uh, paintings that people didn't even want to consider paintings um, and, and so that really inspired me to think hard about what makes a painting um, and what makes a painting be something that people are willing to call a painting. And, um, and, and it, you know, it became pretty clear uh, that different conventions of paintings are important to different people for different reasons. So, you know, for someone like if it hangs on the wall, then they're willing to play around with the idea that this is a painting. But someone else feels like, no, it has to be all paint or it has to be a square or a rectangle. You know, there's certain things that um, a painting needs to have in order for you to accept it as such. Mm -hmm. And even now, you know, people often say like, oh, do you call these paintings? and I, I mean, I always find that question very striking because I, I always want to say, like, well, what would you call them? You know, what if this is not a painting, what would it be? You know, because it's to me, it's so obviously clear that yeah. they're paintings. Um, but it, I do find it very intriguing that something that hangs on the wall, has paint on it, is made out of, you know, linen and oil paint and some other stuff could still be questioned, mm-hmm. you know, is it a painting? But yeah, so the exploration of painting and uh, fabric started in um, grad school. Mm-hmm. Although as a kid, I did a lot of work with fabric. Like I remember 
in the Soviet Union making dry flower arrangements, like fake flower arrangements, mm -hmm. like making the actual flowers. Um, so there, you know, I kind of have like this long history of being interested in fabric. I was going to say, it, it seems to be with set design or, you know, a the idea of maybe a side career in socks, <laughs> like fabric <laughs> is has important. always been around. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think there's also like, it, it also has some kind of traumatic um, weight to me because, mm -hmm. you know, in the Soviet Union, we had very few uh, articles of clothing because you, you wore a uniform mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and you went to school six out of seven days a week. So most of your social time, you were in this set outfit. So I maybe had like two other outfits, like one for hanging out at home and one for like formal occasions. And so the idea of having a different outfit every day, like when I came to the United States and somebody had to clue me in because they were like, hey, you keep, um, wearing, the same keep wearing the same thing. It's like totally weird, yeah. you know? And I was like stunned by that. I just mm -hmm. felt like oh, you got to change your clothes every day. So like, how many outfits do I need to have? And and also, you know, because we came with no, uh, we had to like leave everything behind. Um, the, the Jewish community in Columbus, Ohio, uh, really banded together and was like bringing all this um, bags of clothes and That's dishes. Nice. Yeah, it was really nice. And a lot of the clothes was really, really nice. So mm -hmm. I was sort of like, struck in this in-between space of feeling really uh, confused and, and like outraged by the plethora of kind of requirements, mm -hmm. but also I was really, in, in, you know, seduced by these really beautifully made clothes, like some of them were designer clothes, I didn't even know that at the time, yeah. but, but then this weird thing was happening mm -hmm. that I would like, uh, I went to this um, private, um, middle school, it was like a Jewish school that allowed all the Russian Jews to attend for free. Mm -hmm. But it was a very, you know, expensive school. So I would show up in my like newly selected outfit feeling like really spiffy <laughs> and somebody would be like, Hey, that's my jacket. Oh no. <laughs> so small I, community. Yeah. So I just, you know, again like that feeling of shame and and how that relates mm -hmm. to your outward appearance or the way that people read your appearance um, and how clothing plays into that. So that was something that I think from a very early age I was trying to process. Yeah. So I think fabric is, is um, on top of all of its other associations with like women's work and domestic labor. I'm, I'm really interested in that as well, but, but there is this sort of identity questions that are uh, evoked for me, mm -hmm. um, you know, spandex is a cheap fabric, linen is an expensive fabric. They say different things mm -hmm. because of their value. Um, yeah, and growing up here in the 80s, spandex has a very specific value. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, relationship to the past. Yeah. It brings up so many different memories. And that's the thing, that's what you're talking about. Certain fabrics have that history or a kind of like code based yeah. on culture and time. I'm sure someone growing up now doesn't see spandex in the same way that if you went through Madonna in the 80s. Yeah, like yeah. It has a whole other vibe to it. You know, or like roller skates today compared to 
when you grow up around the culture of roller skating, yeah. and, you know, it's interesting how how fabric can have that association. Yeah, yeah, that there's like a whole kind of wave of feelings that are kind of inchoate and you can't really put a finger on it, but it makes you feel a certain type of way. Think of flags too. Mm. They're fabric and they hold so much mm-hmm. content. And the colors are always symbolic and mm. it's borders and cultures and yeah. identities. You know, it's it's a, they're really powerful, I think. Yeah. And, in the sense of like, wow, this fabric rectangle can mean all this. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about that in relationship to painting as such, because painting often is a, a rectangle that's sort of like coded. Yeah. Um, especially abstract painting is, is like that. And and I'm, I'm really interested in abstraction, but I'm also interested in um, taking it out of the vacuum of abstraction and, and making it more, uh, like, I don't know, I guess kind of straddling that in-between space of mm-hmm. um, alluding to real things in the world, but abstracting them enough to kind of open up the signification behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I guess most of that was about my paintings, but then installations are also a really big part of my practice and um, this site specificity, this idea that like something that you make at a site is inherently different than that very same thing that you may try to make elsewhere or in mm-hmm. your studio. and. And like the stress of site-specific installation is also something I think a lot about, you know, yeah. that it's uh, like, you know, oftentimes I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? And, and I think it, it has to do with immigration for me as yeah. well, this, this feeling of like having to, to pick up and pack and then unpack and then relate to this new place and assimilate and make some kind of life for yourself, you Mm -hmm. know? So I kind of think of site specificity as this uh, metaphor for um, uh, not just adjusting to a new situation, but also finding um, kind of insight and compassion that allows you to see an environment in a very kind of lucid way. Um, so you know, if I if I'm going into a space and I know I'm going to make a site-specific installation there, I'm going to look at all of its details in a very different way than if I'm just passing through or I'm going to put some paintings on the wall. And um, so I really like the kind of um, intensity that in looking that it brings about. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and you know, in terms of the the materials, there's a lot of overlap. I'm really interested in the same materials in my installations, as in my paintings. And for me, it has to do with the conventions of both painting and architecture. How mm-hmm. they are parallel conventions. There's a reason that paintings are window-like, and um, fit so perfectly on a wall. Um, they kind of reinforce each other. They they sort of stand hand in hand, saying like these are appropriate conventions. This is where you want to be. This is the kind of you know environment that humans, civilized humans, have built. 
And, and what strikes me about that is that that environment is completely um, almost contrary to the way our bodies are. You mm -hmm. know, there's not a single straight line in our bodies. There's not a single straight, you know, right angle. Um, That's our world, right? We're always trying to put the grid of, of society and structure over what is complete chaos. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think that it that relates to a certain kind of shame that humans feel towards having a body mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of realizing the immense intelligence that the body has. Um, and I think that's very related to gender issues, mm -hmm. you know, the way that um, traditionally the body has been sort of put in the same realm as the domestic, as the private, as the, the thing that is not spoken about in civil um, society or in civic life. Um, and, and the fact that you know, men were the ones running society and women were the ones running the private sphere. Mm -hmm sort of reinforce those conventions further and further. And I, and I still draw that back to our architecture and our art. You know, I mean, humans didn't always live in boxes. It's really interesting that like all those ideas are basically y your work coming to terms with all that in a way. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like all those different ideas. And, and I think it's interesting for me because I see the work a little differently after mm -hmm. hearing all that. And I wonder how you feel about that too because a lot of people could come to this work and maybe see it from a total different lens Absolutely. of like, oh, this is this kind of painting or there's a certain kind of like looseness or, mm -hmm. or there's a certain vibe to it. And I'm mm -hmm. curious as to how you feel about people's interpretation of that. Um, I, I love interpretations I, and I think that's, partially why I'm interested in like open signification and not closing it down too much. Um, I'm really interested in interpretations that make no relation to the things that I thought about. So to me, that's not a contradiction of my ideas. It's more like this mystery of how visual phenomena can be read and how it's essentially a Rorschach test. and the viewer brings at least 50% of the work to what they're seeing. So it's sort of meeting in between. Um, Nabokov actually talks about this in an interesting way that like the writer and the reader have this um, symmetrical relationship where they're both climbing the mountain um, and so there's, you know, in that metaphor there's a, this sort of allusion to exertion and strength and perseverance like you have you have to have those things to climb a mountain mm -hmm. but then if you make that work and you meet at the summit there's some kind of like elated you know oxygen deprived <laughs> moment yeah. of, of uh you know beauty and understanding and communion mm -hmm. and um so I'm really interested in when people are looking hard at something and having interpretation. I'm less interested in people that make sort of dismissive interpretations where they're sort of like, oh, I get it. It's about this. Right. You know, I kind of feel like they're not doing their part of the bargain. Um, 
because I do think that there should be work on on both sides in order for that kind of communication to actually occur. Yeah, a lot of people don't want to do that when walking into a gallery museum, which is a shame. It is a shame. Because it's really important to a real kind of understanding of the work and letting it hit you, yeah. you know? And I think it takes an experienced eye in a way and a dedication to understanding intent and what is, you know, it's a language, art is a language. And I think a lot of people walk into galleries and museums and expect to be fluent or they don't need to learn anything yeah. about it. But it's really, it's you know, it's like you walking into a store down the street and 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 you know people just expecting you to speak fluent spanish you yeah. know like you know it's it's to in order to have that conversation you really you both have to study that language it's it's the, a give and take that i think a lot of people aren't willing to make yeah know? well i i mean i i also think that sometimes people who have not necessarily studied the language of visual production but are really open to looking and feel and feel like in um in their right to have an opinion are the best viewers Mm -hmm. because they rely on what they see and what they feel and they and and they feel at ease to put those things together and say something about it as opposed to kind of being like wait how does this fit in art history or like how do i say something smart about this um i think the way art makes you feel is the first and foremost kind of jumping off point for interpretation, mm-hmm. you know, kind of sitting with that feeling and thinking about, well, did the artist feel this way or am I supposed to feel this way because it's different than what the artist was feeling or, you know, yeah. where, where does this lead me? And, and this notion of feeling relates back to like our fears of the body, right? Because it's like, I think, our society still privileges the cerebral over the bodily and feeling is somehow relegated to the bodily, um, even though obviously our brain is super involved in how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 you know, I always try to, especially with my students, uh, empower them to be comfortable and confident with what they're feeling and, and mind that in order to get to the subject matter or the content and and you know not not worry about oh this is the wrong thing i don't even i don't believe in the wrong thing mm-hmm. in 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 such interpretation yeah it's amazing like all this in a way because your grandfather told you like look at those clouds up in the sky and the yeah. shape of them you know what i mean like how perception can be shaped and then it's been a way for you to sort of navigate what is a, a very intense journey yeah and kind of like an endless journey you know yeah i think everyone as an artist is on but geographically and in literally in a lot of senses it seems like you're really on that journey you know yeah it's it's really true and i i think about that a lot the the sort of the geographic dislocation or migra- migration and how that um continues to kind of feed the work mm-hmm. um and, and yeah, the, the inspiration I still draw both from my grandfather and my grandmother on my mother's side, who um, actually just passed away in January. And a lot of this work was really inspired by her. Mm-hmm. And she was sort of 
the opposite of my grandfather in many ways. Um, they were kind of yin and yang. She was this sort of like matriarch who maybe thought art was a little silly, mm -hmm. like she couldn't quite wrap her hand around it, but but also felt no fear about saying that, you yeah. know? And not in any kind of pejorative way, but sort of like, like I remember her telling me like, why don't you paint flowers or wrote, like something that people want <laughs> you, to look at? You I do. <laughs> this is why this, is why right, this work yeah. is inspired by her, because I feel like, you know, in, in a sad way, it, it like took her passing mm -hmm. for me to internalize her voice, like the kind of, the joy of life and uh, growth that she um, really kind of put forward in this unabashed, un, unintellectual way. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather being such an intellectual and being so rigorous and stern and kind of like, well, this, this is good growth and this is bad growth. So between those two voices, I feel like I am um, finally feeling like I've, I found a balance for mm -hmm. myself, and I really think of them as my two extremes, you know? Yeah. Like my grandfather representing that cerebral part, and my grandmother representing like the heart, the heart and the desire and this sheer life force. Um, and I seek that now in the studio. Like I really want those moments of, um, of flow when I'm not second guessing things and I'm just wrapped up in the making and the doing and the seeing things grow out of my moves. Um, so yeah, that, that feels like really bittersweet because I, I wish she could see the show, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, she's in the show, right? Yeah. Yeah, she is. I really feel like I channeled her voice in some way. Yeah. Well, it's a really... It's a great group of work. And how long is how long is the show open till? It's open through the end of March. Okay. Yeah. And then if people can't get here, what's the best way for them to see your work? Just on a website? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if um, if people are in LA by mm -hmm. any chance, I have a two person show coming up um, that opens next Thursday, the sixteenth. Okay. And I'm actually going to be there, so. Um, come out come out people should come say where is hi. it it's at this feminist artist run collective called grab bag studio mm -hmm. um they're very new um but they're very spunky i really like their energy and uh so and i was already had plans to be in la so it kind of just you know worked out really perfectly mm -hmm. um but yeah, my website, and I am going to have uh, some site-specific work at the Pfizer building um, in April. Okay. But, yeah. And you're curating, right? Yeah. You're so the, mm -hmm, the show that's up right now at Ortega Gasset is a show I co-curated, um, and it's our first international artist, uh, meaning literally a person who came from another country to <laughs> yeah. make the show yeah. happen. Not international. Right. <laughs> Because, I mean, obviously we show all kinds of artists who are uh, based in the States and are international but are living in the States. But this artist is has traveled from Moscow and gave me a chance to practice my Russian. And she's a really uh, great, interesting artist and activist. Um, Victoria Lamasco is her name. And that show is up through April 9th. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great show. Sounds good. Well, thanks for 
sharing what a pretty yeah. incredible story of how you got to this place. Thank you. And um, yeah, and the show looks great. Thanks for having me here. And right on time, you get to open the doors in a couple minutes oh, for people wonderful. to come in. Okay. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you. It was Brian. great to meet you. Oh, it was so good to meet you too. Thanks. Thanks. of the artist work, studios, and exhibitions on the podcast website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. All other music was made by Lullatone, based out of Nagoya, Japan. Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Ryan Alfred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening.